question for you. Did you know that your phone records how many times you pick it up? So every time that your phone is sitting next to you and you pick it up, your phone says how many times it picks it up. It tells you what you go to. It tells you how long that you are on this various different apps. Everyone's smartphone, we live in the digital age, your phone is recording, and I'm not trying to sound super conspiratorial on you, but your phone is recording everything that you do on it. Kind of a little bit creepy. But what your phones are doing is that it is a tool to monitor how much time that you are distracted, how much time that you are spending time on, so on various different apps versus spending time with people. I found this out this week. The average American picks up their phone 96 times a day. 96 times. This consists of text messages, phone calls, alerts, uh, notifications that pop up. So a lot of these notifications are probably good notifications, but of these 96 times that, they, that you pick up your phone, how many of these 96 times are you picking them mindlessly? Are you just bored or just losing focus and you're becoming distracted with, with, your, with your phone? I have a confession for you. I looked at my record for last week, and I picked up my phone 145 times on average a day last week. Again, notifications, text messages, emails, important things, but again, I often wonder how many of those pickups were through distractions. As we get notifications, one of the things that I know what I discovered this week, of the 96 times that people are picking up their phones a day, half of those times are during work hours. We are distracted from work by our phones for whatever reasons. And so our phones are a distraction for us. But, you know, phones, they really only demonstrate that we are living in an age of distraction. As we think about the times that we are in, that we are looking at all kinds of different things. All kinds of things are vying for our attention and distracting us from, from what what matters most? You know, what matters most for some of us right now is we're coming into the, the carb season where we are just loading up on carbs. I'm sure you probably started this last Thursday of just turkey, mashed potatoes, rolls, casseroles, and pies, and you're just eating lots of food. And so what is happening is now we're in the carb season where it's baked goods, it's Christmas food, it's parties, it's all kinds of different things. And so we are looking at January 1st already for some of us. We're saying, okay, how do I get healthy? How do I get in shape again? And, you know, some of us will start really solid January 1st. We have a plan to lose weight, to get fit. But what inevitably happens is that we get distracted. We get distracted with pressures of life. We get distracted with, uh, uh, t- with a lack of time, a lack of focus. And that plan to get fit, you know, kind of goes by the wayside by February 1st. We live in an age of distractions where we are pursuing something, but we get distracted and we lose our motivation and our energy. As we think about what a distraction is, it is anything that keeps our attention 
and energy for more important things. What can be said about uh, work can also be said about our faith, just that we have a huge desire to be in the Word, to pray, to, to be committed to people. What inevitably happens is we get distracted. We allow just the pressures of life to lose our focus on what is happening. And so we live in constant, a life of, of an age of distractions, both internal, where sometimes we just aren't motivated to follow and we are allowing ourselves to be distracted, or we are influenced by external distractions, things that are outside of our control that interrupt and disrupt our lives where we no longer are focused and pulling our tension away from something else. So all of these things kind of contribute to a distracted life that many of us live, where we're not necessarily living for a life that God has designed for us. And so sometimes these distractions can be idols that have taken root in our hearts that are distracting us from worshiping and loving God. As Pastor Kevin said a few weeks ago, he said, the thing, uh, uh, the thing about idols is that an idol never looks like an idol. An idol distracts us from worshiping God, where something may be good, but it's not the best thing or the greatest thing that God wants for us. And so they expose just the idols in our hearts, just with our distractions. And there's something to be said about how are the distractions that plague our hearts and our minds they prevent us from being mindful. They prevent us from being vigilant in a life in an age of distraction where we are going with the flow, we are doing the things that others are telling us, or just even our own heart. And so we need to live with purpose, and we need to live with diligence. So the challenge for us this morning is how do we stay focused in an age of distraction? Our series since we've been in February, has been through the book of Acts, where we've been following the early church and how it has been a movement, not an institution, where we have seen lives change through the power of the gospel, people living out the gospel, people being focused on living out the gospel, and families and neighborhoods have been transformed. And this is our desire, is to see the city of Yakima transformed by the power of the gospel through us being a movement for the gospel. So the passage that Pastor Kevin read this morning where uh, in Acts 20 is, is Paul's final speech to, to church leaders. He has been slowly working his way back to Jerusalem, and he's been with the Ephesian church for three years. He's lived among them, he's been serving them, and now he's leaving. This is the final time that he's going to be with these, with these leaders. So there's a weight to this speech. After this speech, he's going to sail back to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested and he's going to be imprisoned and he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. So these words have weight because of his relationship with the Ephesians and also because of the, the content of this message. What I love about this speech is it's a glimpse into how Paul lived and how Paul served and what motivated him. And the speech is a launching point for what he expects for leaders to do in his absence. It's a launching point for what he expects all Christians to do in his absence. And it's an instruction for us as we look to live in an age of distraction. But what I love about this is Paul knows that these leaders 
are going to be prone to be distracted from the gospel. And so this is how he gives his final instruction. So Paul, using his own life, he's going to teach his, these leaders and ourselves how we live in an age of distraction. And the first thing we see is that we must be, di- must be diligent. Paul has been singularly focused on preaching the gospel and having it take root and bear fruit in his life. Paul has been singularly focused on the mission of the gospel since his conversion in Acts 9. This is about 20, 25 years since his conversion, and he has been sold out to proclaim Christ. But look what he says at verse 18. He says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. He said, look at me, and this is, this is, this is what I love about Paul. In these, in these first few verses, Paul's reminding the leaders the type of life that he has led. And I just want to look at these verbs here that he uses. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened. How I did not shrink from declaring what was profitable and teaching and testifying about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are, the, these are the verbs that Paul has lived out, and so he's being diligent in living these things out. So he's reminding these leaders of his character and his con- that his conduct are in complete agreement. And they are in agreement because he has been desired to be rooted in the gospel. So Paul lived with all humility. He He cried, he was boldly declaring the truths of the grace of Jesus Christ, and he held nothing back. All of his energy, all of his devotion was rooted in the gospel to grow people both publicly and privately. Paul was not distracted. So there was nothing that distracted him from being diligent to be rooted in the gospel, proclaiming all of these truths to everyone. But we also show that if we are going to be focused in an age of distraction, that we must be motivated by the gospel. We learn in the next few verses that Paul's ministry was spirit-directed and motivated by the grace of God. This is where we see verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Paul knows what his future holds, and he doesn't hold back. He's willing to go to Jerusalem to face trials, to face tribulations, to face imprisonment, because he is rooted in in, in the gospel, and it is the gospel that motivates him to live differently. This is what we see in verse 24. But I do not count my life any value, nor as precious as myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See that? The gospel is Paul's sole motivating factor in life. Paul is so sold out to the gospel that he's willingly giving his life in order to magnify the name of Jesus. Nothing is going to distract him from making Christ known to his friends, to his family, to the world around him. This is 
what it looks like to be a part of a movement that makes the gospel known is being sold out for the gospel. And if we're going to find purpose in our life, it begins by being motivated to live and proclaim the gospel of Christ. This is where we find the ability to live spirit-directed and gospel-motivated lives. So Paul has shown that he has lived in an age of distraction, being diligent and being motivated by the gospel. Now he's going to shift from himself and his life, and he's going to command these leaders how they're supposed to live in light of distractions. He tells us that we must be vigilant to deal with distractions and dangers in our lives. In this final section, Paul's going to transition away from himself and is now focused on how believers are supposed to live and how they're supposed to be vigilant. Verse 25, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Paul has given his life proclaiming the kingdom of God to the church of Ephesus. He's been giving his life as an example of living and being motivated by the gospel. And then we see in verse 26, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The word therefore is a very small and important word that we often overlook. And in light of everything that Paul has said, this is where he's going. The therefore is important. Paul has said in light of his character and his conduct in verses 18 through 27, they are supposed to take note on how to live differently. But I want you to notice the language of being innocent of the blood of Ephesians. Paul is using watchman imagery from Ezekiel 3. A watchman in ancient days, they were supposed to be posted on the walls to guard the city by night. Their sole job was to observe the horizon for any potential danger, any potential people coming to destroy the city, and a good watchman would alert the city for anything, even if it was a cat five miles down the road. They wouldn't be able to see that. But they were alerting the city for any potential danger, for any potential distraction. And Paul is saying that he has been a good watchman in that he has been declaring the whole counsel of God to the Ephesians. For the three years that he spent with them, he's been declaring nothing but the whole counsel of God. He's been pointing them to God's plan of redemption throughout the Old Testament. He has been pointing them about their sin. He has been calling them to repent, to deal with their sin. He has been doing everything he can in his power to teach people how to grow in their faith for themselves. Now, because of all of these things, he's going to give leaders two very important commands. And these commands also apply to us and how we're supposed to live, and how we're supposed to be motivated, and how we're supposed to live through distraction. Paul's first command is in verse 28. Pay careful, to your, uh, pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock. Why do we pay attention? Paul goes on in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So look, Paul commands the leaders to be vigilant. But what does vigilant actually mean? It means the state of keeping careful watch for possible distractions, dangers, 
difficulties. Paul knows that all too soon, the Ephesian leaders, they're going to be distracted. They're going to forget their first love, and we actually see that in Revelation 3, where they get distracted and they get pulled away from the gospel. So Paul is warning them, pay careful attention to yourselves, because we have an enemy who is Satan who is coming to devour us. We see this in 1 Peter 3, where we are told that Satan is a roaring lion seeking to devour whomever he can. Paul is telling us that wolves, external threats, will try to infiltrate the church with bad doctrine, with bad practice, to lead us away, to devour us from from the gospel. But there's also internal threats that we have to be uh, paying attention to. So good leaders defend or diligently defend the church from all possible dangers that come from come to every growing and healthy church. But he also focuses on the internal threats in verse 30. He says, From your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Did you know that one of the most effective and most common tools that our enemy uses is distraction? Things that pull us away from the gospel, things that distract us from living on mission for things that distract us from relying on the grace of God. How many times have you been in churches and you've heard things like, oh, we can't have, we can't have drums in the music because that's going to lead us to hell. We get focused on things that are not gospel that we make gospel. We get focused on things like um, uh, uh, um, from, from politics. Just oh, we need to know what's happening on Capitol Hill. We need to fight against the Democrats or we need to fight against the Republicans. And we get more focused on that than we do on the gospel working and moving in our lives. We get distracted from from people having hyper-focus on genealogies and all of the, the cool things about how people's lineage. We even get distracted on end time stuff where we become more focused on the secret things in Revelation and how all of these things are pointing to the specific times of when Christ is coming back, and we forget and we miss the fact that the book of Revelation is calling us to confess and to worship Christ above all things. We get sidetracked on so many different issues, and the enemy is happy to distract us from what matters most, and that is the gospel. We get focused, we get distracted. We can even get distracted by what people say about us. We can get distracted by church hurt and the pain that comes with that and that pulls our eyes off of Christ, pulls our eyes off of the gospel. We get distracted and we become ineffective in living out the gospel. The people are going to come from within the church. They're wanting to pursue good things but they get distracted to make that good thing more important than, than the gospel. So we must be vigilant to be mindful of the potential ways that we are distracted from the gospel and pursue the good things that not, or, and not to pursue, the, to pursue the greatest thing. But this is where we find a second commandment. Verse 31, Therefore, be alert, remembering for that three years I did not cease night or day admonish everyone with tears. This is a second, therefore, again, in light of everything that Paul has said, be alert. 
Be alert is another way to be vigilant. So we are to pay careful attention, and we are to be alert in our vigilance for the gospel. Paul encourages the leaders to reflect on his example. Again, this is where Paul looks back at himself and he says, I admonished you, meaning I corrected you, I loved you, I poured into you with tears. And he's pointing us back to everything that he said about himself in 18 through 27 and what they're supposed to remember. But we already saw how Paul was diligently rooted in the gospel and how he was motivated in the gospel. Now he's saying, be alert to model those same things for others. It goes on in verse 32, he says, And now I commend you to God, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul, at this point in his life, as he is giving over the Ephesian church to the word of grace, meaning that he is entrusting God to take care of this church in ways that he cannot. This was always God's church, but, but he is reminding them that their source of power, their source of energy, their source of being comes from the word of grace. He is showing them that God is the one who builds and cares for the church. He is the one who provides everything, including an inheritance for the people. But again, Paul's reminding the Ephesians about his conduct, his character that he displayed for them for three years. I love this. He says in verse 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He's saying, I didn't live for money. I didn't, I didn't strive to pad my bank account. I lived with no desire for money. Then he says in 34, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and those who are with me. He's not motivated by money. He's not motivated by power or prestige. He is simply motivated by the gospel taking root in his life and in the lives of others. He is diligently working to live out the gospel as we see. You yourselves know these hands ministered in my necessities. He is diligent to live out the gospel. And his whole purpose in life is being rooted in the gospel for the sake of blessing and enriching God's holy people, the church. This is what he's saying in verse 35. He says, In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. If we're going to live with purpose in an age of distraction, then we must be vigilant and be rooted in the gospel. Paul has been telling us to be vigilant, to be rooted in the gospel. And what this means is living with the hope of the gospel with an outward-focused eyes, not to protect ourselves, but in serving others for the sake of the gospel, investing in and building in in the lives of other people, and we are being motivated by the power of the gospel. I love how this passage ends. After speaking this word, he prays, and the, the, the leaders depart. But what you see is that Paul, through his investment, he is going to be loved. He's going to be missed. They are sorrowful at his departure. But because Paul has been rooted in the gospel for the sake of these leaders, they are sorrowful because of the life that Paul is leaving them. 
We are going to live in an age of distraction, things vying for our attention, things pulling us away from the gospel, then we have to be diligent, be firmly rooted in the gospel. So I have two questions for us this morning. What is distracting you from being rooted in the gospel? See, a distraction is something that pulls away our attention and our energy away from living for the gospel. From the moment that we wake up to the moment that we go to bed, something is vying not only for our attention, but also vying for our affection. A distraction is one of the most common tools that Satan uses to keep us from being effective and fully rooted in the gospel. So, as we think about these things, is it your money? Is it your time? We schedule things that are the most important to us. We plan things that we value. We spend our money on things that we care about. As you open up your calendar, as you open up your, your, your bank account, your bank statements, where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your energy? Where are you spending your money? You can even pull up your phone and look at just the, the record of how much time you're spending on useless things. Our time and our, inner, our, our money demonstrate where we may be distracted. We can easily get caught, caught up doing good things instead of the best things for us. And the best things for us is to know and enjoy the living God who created us. You see, God has invited us to abide with him, to know him, to rest in him. He's inviting us to trust him with the resources that he's already given us, our time, our money, and our abilities. Sometimes the greatest distraction in our lives with our money and our time is we just, we just don't have enough. We need more money. We need more time. We need more things to be able to do what we want to do. Being rooted in the gospel is simply knowing that we have enough to be present with God. For some of us, we're distracted by religion. We're distracted by having to come to church, putting on this big smile, and everything's fine, and everything's good, and everything's great, and we are distracted by having to live a life of perfection. We've, we come to church, people ask us how we're doing, and we throw out all kinds of Christian cliches about, oh, God is so good, God is so great, but, you know, 10 minutes ago, you were fighting with your spouse in your car on the way to church. We put on this face and we are distracted from being real with others, being real with, with ourselves, being real with God. And this is one of the reasons why I love one of our family values is that we celebrate progress over perfection, where we don't have to be distracted by being perfect. We can be who we are. God has called us to be people who, who know him. And so this is one of the greatest ways that we become distracted is just having to put on this face. But when we are pursuing Christ, not perfection, that is a way for us to be rooted in the gospel. But we can also be distracted with secret sins. Things that we're hiding, things that we're not letting other people know that we are living a secret lifestyle. Secret sins are probably one of the easiest ways to get distracted from the gospel. Where we have 
an addiction on the side, where we have in a secret affair or a secret relationship on the side, and we are, we are pursuing those things, and we are being distracted from living out the gospel. The thing about the, the lies that we believe is that, you know, no one's, this, this isn't harming anybody. I can do whatever I want on the side, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't impact my life. Or even another lie that we believe in just in this is that, that I'm the only one that is struggling with this addiction. Our secret sins distract us from being rooted in the gospel. And I want to tell you this. I guarantee you that whatever your secret is that you're struggling with, someone at restoration has already overcome that. And you are not alone in that. You are not alone in having to live out this. And God is calling us to, to confess and to return to him in giving these, these sins up to him. This is why we need each other and we need the encouragement to build one another up in the gospel so that we cannot be distracted. We can see the distraction in other people's lives and we can, we can work together. But in all the areas of our lives that we are be distracted and being rooted in the gospel, I encourage you to make this your daily prayer. This is Psalm 139, 23 through 24. It says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We are living in an age of distraction. Sometimes we don't even know how we're distracted. And so David has given us this prayer for us to pray. It's a hard prayer for God to search us, to know our hearts. But as we actively and we, we commit ourselves to praying this, God is faithful to show us where we're distracted, where our hearts are moved away from him. And he draws us back into a life of everlasting. See, God is not interested in beating us over the head because of all the ways that we're distracted or all the ways that we're failing. No, God is, is calling us back into relationship with him. He wants us to make room for him where our hearts are free from distractions that weigh us down and distract us from loving him above all things. The more that we fight against the age of distractions, the more that we find a life of abundance that God has for us. I have a last question for you, and how can we know that we are rooted in the gospel? Not, how do, I be, how do I become rooted in the gospel, but how can I know that I'm rooted in the gospel? Honestly, one of the best indicators of being rooted in the gospel is generosity. Paul gives these important words that I completely skipped over. Look back at verse 35. It says, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Our generosity is a fruit that we are rooted in the gospel. This is the life and the example that Paul gave, where he gave everything. He gave his time. He gave his energy. He gave his focus to the Ephesian church to build them up, to draw them into a relationship with God. And generosity is such 
an important facet of life. It doesn't just apply to the church life and, and what we are tithing, but it applies to the whole life, how we are sharing what God has given us to give to others. When we understand how the gospel is at work in our lives, the less that we are moved to consume and take, and the more that we are motivated to reinvest the grace that we've received for others. This reminds me of my father-in-law. Arguably, probably the most generous person I know. He has learned a long time ago he can never outgive God. He can never outpace God for giving. The more that he gives, the more that God gives him to give to others. And he is a he's learned that it is more blessed to give to others, to invest in others than it is to receive and to take and to hold on to God's grace. He has he and, and my mother-in-law, they have they have adopted all kinds of kids and grandkids, and they support missionaries, they support pastors, they support people through their generosity. And God blesses them more and more, and they find that. Not only do they, have they seen people grow in their faith in tremendous ways through their generosity, but they've found just amazing conversations in, in how the gospel is at work in the lives of other people. Generosity is a key that we are rooted in the gospel, where we are to take the grace that we've been given rather than holding on to it and storing, and storing it for a day when we might need it. We are giving out that grace that we have received, those blessings that we have received into the lives of others. The generosity is one of the greatest markers that we are rooted in the gospel. Think about how having a generous spirit changes our relationships, changes our marriages. When we approach a marriage not looking to get something, but we approach a marriage to give and invest in our spouse, how much more blessed is that marriage? How much more healthy and strong is that marriage? When we look at saying, okay, how do I invest in relationships, in my friendships, rather than taking and, and consuming, but I am giving back and I am nurturing a relationship, and these are close friends. Some of our closest friends are people who have invested in us, not necessarily that we've invested in them. How much more does it take when we look and say, okay, how can I invest myself and be generous with what God has given me to bless and encourage and to build up other people? God has ordered life in such a way that we experience real flourishing, real blessing when we have the mindset to strive to show how the gospel is in our relationship. When we approach the church not looking to have our needs met, but looking to meet the needs and to serve others. This is where we find that God works in profound and deeply, in, in deeply profound ways. Generosity is a key to being rooted in the gospel. God's kingdom is built on men, through men and women who graciously give their lives away to others. All because that they've learned it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is what it looks like for us to be rooted in the gospel. Will you pray with me?